Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello, my name is Jamila Risby and welcome to Anonymous Was A Woman. This season is brought to you by Hachette Publishing Australia and is produced by Bad Producer Productions and made by Future Women. And I am thrilled that today I am joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards and Astrid, today we get to talk about politics. What an exhausting topic. Yes, I think right now many Australians who are across the East Coast in particular who are living in lockdown want to talk about anything but. And yet at the same time, we don't have anything to talk about except the pandemic and politics because none of us are doing anything. So we don't have anything else to chat about unless, of course, we are reading a really good book. And both you and I have dived into some political books this week and we've got a lot to say. But I wanted to start by asking you about the idea of writing books about politics at all because our newspapers, of course, are full of politics. We have a daily record of what is going on in politics. So what is the role of the political book that is of the moment if we can get the short version in the paper every day? That is such a great question. And I think journalists, the people who are writing those daily news stories, maybe the slightly longer versions that we get on a Saturday, are some of the best writers to write books that have politics as a central part. And that's because politics is at once really high level. It's about ideas and how things are and appear to be. But at the same time, it's about the minutiae of who met who when and who's on whose side and what date the meeting or the money, you know, it's, it's very, very, very specific, but also huge. And I think the role of a book is to take all of that little stuff that is the daily stuff that we might tune out of, let's face it, it can be boring unless you're a political junkie like you, but for the rest of us, it can be boring and step back and think what just happened. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because when you're writing in the day to day, I think there's a lot of framing that goes on for political journalists. You know, you're sitting there and you've got the government pushing their version of events and you've got the opposition pushing theirs and the minor parties pushing theirs. And then within those parties, you've got different players who are pushing a slightly different narrative because they are framing things up in a divergent way to perhaps how their leadership is framing things up. And your job is to pull together all of this information and make your own assessment of what is going on and what is happening at the time. And while I think that is extraordinarily valuable, by coming up with your own narrative in the moment, you're inevitably going to miss things. And, you know, the greatest example I can think of is... Julia Gillard and her famous misogyny speech, which went viral around the world, which the public responded to in the most extraordinary way. And yet, if you picked up and went only by the record of the newspapers that were published the morning after that speech, you wouldn't have any idea that it was a big speech at all. You wouldn't have any idea that it was even a good speech. I remember there were journalists at the time who just said they weren't that impressed with it. So I think journalists do get it wrong in the moment. And also when you're up front, up close and personal, you're going to miss things when you're in the busyness and the fray of the political debate of the minute. And sometimes I think it's really useful, not just for the reading public, but 
for a record of history for journalists who are seeing that cut and thrust in the day, every day, to take those not just one step but, say, ten steps back and look at how a debate has evolved over time and say, okay, this is how I think history should remember this person. I agree. And I'm also going to demonstrate my deep, deep cynicism here. I don't think journalists know everything at the time. And I think there are sometimes they know stuff that doesn't go to print. Now, that might be because of personal circumstance. That might be because it's illegal to print. That might be for a whole bunch of great reasons. But what is known on the day or in the week or in the month or even in the year doesn't always make it out into the public. And I think that that's why books are so important. They last longer, if that makes sense. And they give a journalist, give a reporter, give a researcher the opportunity to go back and dig and to find out stuff that decision makers didn't really want in the public domain at a certain time or didn't know themselves and it all came out later. So it's so important for all of us, you know, everybody listening to us today, Jam, whether they care about gender equity or the climate crisis or immigration or whatever it is that you care about, the record matters because that is essentially determining how we experience our lives, which is goddamn huge. And today we are going to dive into one relatively new book, which Astrid thinks will be a record of history that people refer back to in the future. And we're also diving into a book that has recently been re-released, but was first published 17 years ago. And we will see how that political analysis stacks up. Astrid, I am so thrilled today to be bringing Julia Baird's Media Tarts to the table, which, as I've already mentioned, was first published in 2004, which was my first year of university. And I remember getting my copy at the local bookshop back when buying a book was an indulgence, if it wasn't a textbook, and absolutely devouring it in the tiny bedroom of a share house that I could barely afford to live in. And feeling gripped. I think it was one of my first forays into feminism, into reading a book that helped crystallise my view and experience of the world through the lens of feminism, which I probably hadn't done before. And now it's been re-released in 2021. A whole lot has happened since then. And it's got a new forward and some extra notes from Julia Baird And it's amazing just how much of this book holds up. I am so very impressed. Back when this book was released, I did not read it. I was in my fifth year of university studying the classics, meaning studying dead white men. And at the time, this would have fully passed me by because I didn't think I needed to be a feminist. So well done on figuring it out much earlier than I did, Jam. I have recently picked this book up and I find it both wonderful And really sad. I'm going to read to you from one review, Astrid. It says, while the tone of the book is even-handed, reading the history is at times gruesome, like watching a demolition derby. Baird's description of how it felt to watch the public stoning of Julia Gillard sounds either shameful or like watching a horror flick. Many of us watched the disaster unfolding on television between the cracks of our fingers. Now, I have been a bit cheeky there. That is not a recent review. That is a review from 2004. It didn't mention Julia Gillard. It mentioned Cheryl Curnow. But 
you can change the name and it works. It still holds up. And I think the hardest thing about rereading this work was just how much it rang true for more recent events. So this book was originally based on Julia Baird's PhD thesis. It looked at then well-known figures like Bronwyn Bishop, Cheryl Curnow, Carmen Lawrence, the women who had been sort of slated as she could lead the country possibles, women who were being talked about as potentially the first female prime minister. Obviously, none of them ever reached that honour. That was Julia Gillard's alone. But the updated reflections, I think, are almost of less value than the prompting to reread a book that was written almost 20 years ago and makes clear we were dealing with the same shit. We really are dealing with the same shit. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this book is going back in the chapters on Bronwyn Bishop, but also the chapter on Floyd Bielka Peterson. I obviously know about Joe and Flo, but not in detail. And reading that chapter really felt like I was learning something about the history of women in politics in Australia. And I didn't know before. I I am too young. I missed all of that. But then as we go forward, I rarely put down a book. And I put this book down for a while because I found it both intellectually and emotionally distressing that this work because it's based on a PhD thesis, kind of was written about 20 years ago. It takes a while to write a PhD and then get it into book format. Nothing feels like it has changed. I mean, so many things have changed. We have had a female prime minister, but also nothing has changed. It made me upset. So Baird unpacks a whole number of tropes, I suppose, that the media uses to frame up. We were talking about framing in the introduction, framing up female politicians. And she talks about how stereotypical those tropes are. And to quickly summarise, there's the superstar housewife. So often women were photographed as Flo Bielke-Peterson was. They were photographed in their homes, cooking, cleaning. They were photographed with vacuum cleaners. You would remember before Julia Gillard was Prime Minister when she was still in opposition. She was famously photographed alone at home in her kitchen and there was no fruit in her fruit bowl. And this was taken as something worthy of commentary and became a real metaphor for her, a woman who was at the time single and didn't have any children. There were what Julia Baird calls the cover girls, which I think would refer to my old boss in politics, Kate Ellis, who was famously commented on for her appearance when Kate would go to the dispatch box to speak in the parliament. It wasn't unusual for the opposition to yell out things like, here comes the weather girl. And in her recent book, reflecting on the experiences of women in parliament, she talks about some of the treatment that she copped for being considered conventionally attractive and therefore assumed to be shallow and sort of stupid. There were the iron lady types and Julia Baird calls them the steel sheilers. These were women sort of made in the image of Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom. She talks particularly about Bronwyn Bishop. There were the feminine feminists. These were women who were feminists, yet it was acceptable because they maintained and professed their femininity. And then Julia Baird also talks about the sinning saints, which is, of course, what Cheryl Curnow was finally written off as. Someone who changed parties, was seen as ambitious, was crucified for doing a media spread where she posed with a red dress and a feather boa that also became infamous and came to define her. I can't think of a male politician who is so defined by what they wore. When you see 
media coverage of young male politicians, it's always like a who's the next up and coming star? Who's going to be the next leader? Who are we going to focus on? Who are we excited about? Who are we going to be talking about in 10 years? They're just not put in these little stereotypical boxes the way women are. And they're also manifestly uninteresting, if I can put my personal bias <laughs> out there, Jam. You were just talking about the framing and how the media and the public, often led by the media, puts female politicians into these certain boxes. The chapter on Margaret Thatcher and how just her existence, not even mm-hmm. her policies, just her existence framed the way that the media and other politicians boxed in female politicians. So she was the original Iron Lady, at least in you know 20th century Western politics. And the idea that regardless of their platform, regardless of what party they belong to, regardless of their age or anything about them, female politicians basically were always asked, are they going to be Australia's version of Thatcher, as if that is the only way, you know, we're talking back in the 90s, the only way a female could lead. I take your point and I think it it comes down to this idea of the few and the many. There have been so many male prime ministers in Australia that they get to be themselves. They get to be assessed on their own merits. You get to ask the question, was Paul Keating a good prime minister? Was Tony Abbott a good Prime Minister, no. Whereas with Julia Gillard, we ask, was she a good woman Prime Minister? Because we've only had one, we still focus on gender and we think that the way Julia Gillard executed her role in that job, therefore, is how a woman one, in quotation marks, would do it. The same way that we looked to the UK 15 years ago and thought, okay, so that's how a woman one does it. And it's interesting, Julia Gillard put out a book about 18 months ago about women in leadership where she spoke to women leaders around the world and the one who responded most positively about her experience was Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. And interestingly, she is the third woman Prime Minister that New Zealand has had and she talked about how it's been better for her. hasn't been good. I mean, people still asked her at the first press conference whether she was going to have a baby, but still the way has been paved and New Zealanders are used to seeing women leading the country. So they are more likely to assess women on their merits as individuals rather than assuming that the way they behave is therefore the way all women will behave now and into the future. As you were just talking, Jam, it really made me Think back to my high school days when I understood a tiny, tiny little bit about Margaret Thatcher and presumably that meant that women were now equal and I could do whatever I wanted. That's pretty much what my high school teachers taught me and good for them. It was a good thing to be taught, but also it was a lie. And now as a woman, I actually think, gosh, I mean, do we need like another hundred years, 200 years? How many female leaders do they need to be winning and losing as everybody else wins and loses in politics to make it normal? It's not just a one generation thing. No, it's not. We need to get to a point where a woman in leadership is unremarkable and we're a long way away from that. Okay, Jam, well, as promised, I'm going deep into the weeds of the minutiae behind politics. Today, I would like to talk about the Carbon Club how a network of influential climate skeptics, politicians and business leaders fought to control Australia's climate policy, 
by Marion Wilkinson. Now, Marion Wilkinson is a journalist. Her career has spanned radio, television, and print. She has been a foreign correspondent in Washington. She has been the executive producer of ABC's Four Corners. She has specialized in environmental reporting, and she's actually covered two of the major UN climate conferences, that in Bali and Copenhagen. And the Carbon Club is a blow-by-blow account of what happened in the meeting rooms, essentially, governing Australia's environmental and climate policy for about the last three decades. Tell us, Astrid, tell us how we have ended up in this god-awful mess. (laughs) Well, I knew we were in a god-awful mess before I read this book. And this book is so detailed, basically saying who met with whom on what day and what they talked about and why they made the decisions they did, not for the good of Australia, not for the good of the party even, but for personal gain. I think that this might be a piece of evidence that comes back to haunt people in 10, 20, 40, 50 years. It is possible to read this book and write down a list of public servants and elected politicians who have hurt us all because of the personal and political decisions they made. Wowzers. I mean, my first reaction is how on earth does that book get published when Australia's defamation laws are so extraordinarily tight? But it's, um, it's not framed like that. Like it's not framed like that. But I believe that we've already seen around the world young people suing governments, suing elected officials and suing multinational corporations. We've seen Australian young people doing exactly that. And I read this book and there are many good people in here who were doing the right thing and were shunted aside, were prevented from making the right choices and implementing the right choices. This is also a list of people who tried their hardest but there are people who basically just did it for their own personal goals and when I say did it, I mean prevented Australia from getting any kind of effective environmental policy. This is both sides of politics. I'm not being political here. This is a list of people from uh, a bunch of different places. And I don't know if I'm really kind of giving you the gravity of this situation. This is not an interesting book to read. That's a really weird thing to say. But I mean, unless you're interested in all of the meetings and the, the discussions behind the scenes of how to frame politics or how to frame this policy or how to frame this change in public policy position, you're going to find this book not a thrilling read. It is chronological and it's distressing to read because we actually had a world-class international answer back in the 90s. Australia has had the answer for my entire adult life and we still haven't implemented it. I haven't had a chance to read The Carbon Club, but from listening to you, it almost sounds like Marion Wilkinson's kept the receipts. Yeah, and going back to what we discussed earlier in this episode, Jam, this is why reporters and journalists are so good at writing books. They do report on the daily happenings, and over time, that is a way of keeping the receipts. I have climate anxiety, and I am fascinated by anything to do with the environment and climate politics. And I'm really angry that we have not been served well as a country by any of our leaders. Some tried harder than others, but nevertheless. And somehow most people in Australia don't understand how badly we have been served. It's atrocious. And I'm recommending this book because I think people should know. So who's the book for? Because you've talked about the importance of the Australian public understanding the wrong that has been done by them and the wrong that has been done by future generations. But also, I get the impression that the book's not 
you know, it's not a romp of a read, right? It's not, it's not, it's not a kind of, it, it's not a gripping Dan Brown thriller, right? <laughs> we're, we're dealing with a book that is chronicling history in quite a factual way. Is that fair? Absolutely. I mean, it's written very well. It's just, it's a bit dry. When you read media charts, for example, there are famous things that you will remember. Highlights. It's not like that, but I think that it is equally important. And I want to put The Carbon Club next to Media Tarts as a book that should be reprinted in a couple of decades because it is a list of names of people who have heard us. And imagine, I don't want to ask you to imagine given your climate anxiety, but imagine where we'll be and the perspective from which we'll be reading from in 20 years' time because we're well past the fateful 2030 mark in 20 years' time. In fact, we're well into 2040 and heading towards 2050, at which point, if there isn't significant action globally on a warming planet, we're in an incredible amount of trouble. Astrid, I found my recommendations really hard for this podcast because this theme, I mean... I'm a political junkie. I've been a political junkie since I was 17. I have been reading political biographies and memoirs since I was that age. And yes, no one wanted to sit next to me at school. But I have brought one of my favourites and I need to start by saying this is not an unbiased journalistic recommendation. This book is written by someone who clearly adores and reveres the subject. So, If you are looking for a rigorous, journalistic, independent assessment of Bob Hawke, go somewhere else. I want to recommend Wednesdays with Bob, which is written by Derek Riley together with Bob Hawke. It has, to begin with, the most arresting cover. It is a portrait of Hawkey. He is in his 80s, I would imagine, when this is being drawn. He is against a black background. You can barely see his body, only his face, that famous silver hair and his hand, which is holding a cigar and shrouding most of the cover in cigar smoke. Hawke was, of course, Australia's 23rd Prime Minister. He, in his 80s, welcomed journalist Derek Riley into his home and together they shared cigars and conversation. And every Wednesday, Derek would go and visit Hawke and they would sit on a sunny balcony of Hawke's very large and lovely house in Sydney. And they would talk about the stuff that matters. They'd talk about politics and they talk about religion and sex and love and death, a lot about sport and everything in between. Riley also interviews a lot of Hawke's contemporaries. He talks to John Howard. He talks to his Labor allies, Gareth Evans, Kim Beasley. He talks to Blanche. He talks to Hawke's stepson. He talks to economist Ross Garno and one of Hawke's oldest mates, Cole Cunningham. And the result for those individuals who watch politics closely and admire Bob Hawke for many reasons and I count myself amongst one of those people. It is the most exquisite portrait of a man who has since died and his thoughts on this country and where we've come from and where we're at and most importantly where we are going. And we've since lost Bob Hawke and I think we have lost a national treasure and a great contributor to this country. And I felt like while reading this book, 
I was sitting on that sunny porch with him, possibly not smoking the cigars, but I feel like I was there. I felt like he was a friend. That is such a lovely recommendation and a lovely way to feel about a book. The idea that you felt like you were sitting with a friend. Oh, it's just joyful. And I mean, when on earth would you ever describe a political biography as joyful? But it is. I'm glad that you have found a joyful political biography. For my recommendation today, I am going to atone for my depressing The Cullen Club (laughs) earlier in this episode. And I would like to recommend The Future We Choose, The Stubborn Optimist Guide to the Climate Crisis by Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak. Now, Christiana Figueres is such an impressive person. She led the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and she kind of oversaw in that role the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. She's really known for being collaborative and for a leadership style that essentially is not like all the other men who kind of haven't been quite getting us there on climate for a very long time. She wrote it with Tom Rivet Karnak, who actually was her political strategist. And it's just a lovely read. It's written well, it's exciting, it's full of hope, and you will enjoy reading it because it takes us to a good place. What a lovely pair of recommendations to follow up what has otherwise been a somewhat despairing episode of Anonymous Was a Woman. Astrid, thank you for your time. Thank you for your knowledge and insights and for being the most voracious reader I know. That's it for this episode of Anonymous Was a Woman. Please join us on Thursday when we will be interviewing Annika Smethurst, former Federal Press Gallery journalist and author of a new biography of Scott Morrison. In the meantime, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, then you've got to follow us. You've got to follow us or you've got to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a lovely bloody rating and a very kind review. We will be back in your ears shortly. This episode was made with thanks to Hachette Publishing, Bad Producer Productions and Future Women. Listener.